Wonderful as that gospel reading is, we are going to focus today on Psalm 8. And you may like to have that open as it's printed in your insert. Let me pray. Father, open my mouth that I may speak in a way that makes it easy for others to hear what you have to say to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about God's exaltation of the human being. As we read this psalm, Psalm 8, we are perhaps to imagine King David sitting on the roof of his palace in Jerusalem. It's a warm, clear night, a summer's night with a crescent moon up, and above him is spread a carpet of stars, the Milky Way prominent, certain planets shining brightly. And below him are the streets of Jerusalem with small figures moving about in the streets which are lit here and there. The horizon is dark, woods and pasture are hidden in the night. The sound of animals carries occasionally to the palace roof. As we imagine David here, we should also perhaps imagine him with the scroll of the book of Genesis open to hand. And imagine that he has just read Genesis 1 26, where we read, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, with all this before him, the sky above him, the small figures of his people in the city moving about below him and the book of Genesis open beside him, he begins to write Psalm 8. And in this psalm, three things come together. Firstly, the splendour of the earth and the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. It's the way he opens the psalm, and there is an awe-inspiring splendour in the natural world. You've all stood at the foot of a mountain range or watched great waves crash on rocks or watched dolphins play or birds flock. You've seen the night sky lit up by stars in the country, perhaps, before the moon is up. You've seen the world that David Attenborough brings to our living rooms and our television sets, full of, well, wonder. You've been to the SciTech Planetarium and had your mind blown by the scale of the universe we inhabit. It gets you deep inside. The vastness, the beauty, the power, the flashing life, moving and striving and thriving. There's something to wonder at, indeed almost to venerate in the earth and the heavens. And David says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. It's not that the heavens and the earth are themselves divine, but God's name, something of his character and nature, is woven majestically through creation. God's glory shines in his works and hence our sense that they are charged with sacredness, with sublimity. There's the first thing in this psalm, the splendour of the heavens and the earth. 
The second thing in this psalm is the insignificance of human beings, of any human being. I'm skipping verse 2, you may notice, because frankly it's still rather mysterious to me what it's talking about. I'm very happy to talk to you afterwards if you really are curious as to what can be made of verse 2, but it is a, a difficult verse. But if we skip over and imagine that David looks down from the starry sky above him, to a small dark human figure making its way through the laneway below with their path lit by a a lamp. And it prompts the question that we read in verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings, that you care for them. The question is actually asked in the singular, so you You could even translate it, what is any human individual that you would attend to one? A child of humankind that you would care for one? Looking at any particular human being against the backdrop of the heavens and the earth, we all seem rather insignificant, rather pitiful. A poor, bare, forked animal as Shakespeare had Lear put it, being born, creeping around the world for a time and then passing away. And whether we are nasty or nice, what does it matter to God? We're such small fry, such a minor part of the cosmic scene. Why would God fix on us? Why would God attend to us, any one of us? Why would he care? And at this point, the third factor comes in to the fore, that God has made human beings for royal dignity. David, turning now to Genesis one twenty six, says in Psalm 8, 5 to 8, he answers his question, you have made human beings a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim the paths of the seas. This is the exalted place that God has for human beings in his creation. However, it is not obvious from observing human beings that we occupy this exalted place of royal dignity. For we are small and powerless and fleeting enough to call into the question the idea that all flocks and herds the animals of the wild, the birds of the sea, and the fish in the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, uh, that we do in fact rule over them. It's, it's true that we can dominate animals and our environment to a degree, perhaps quite a large degree. So our bodies may be small, but our intellects give us a big advantage. We are certainly unique in our capacities. Compared to other animals and creatures around us, our intellectual and cultural capacities, our capacities to adapt the environment to our liking. Here we all sit covered from the rain in seats to suit us. But still we are caught up in the grip of natural forces much bigger than ourselves that we manage to some degree but do not control. And hence... When the writer to the Hebrews reads Psalm 8, he does not think it describes things as they now are. So I'm moving now to look at the New Testament reading, which 
is a reading itself of Psalm 8. We have a chain here. Psalm 8 is reading Genesis 1 and Hebrews 2 is reading Psalm 8. When the writer to the Hebrews reads Psalm 8 and writes about it in Hebrews 2, the writer does not think that Psalm 8 describes things as they now are. Hebrews 2 regards Psalm 8 as speaking about the world to come, where God really completes what Genesis 1 describes and we reach the true Sabbath, the seventh day of rest. Let me read from Hebrews 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Here is Psalm 8 being quoted. The writer to the Hebrews goes on in putting everything under them. God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. At present, we do not see everything subject to human beings. That is, you know, my son went out for a walk the other day and a bird pooed on him. Does a subject do that to their king? Not at all. Dogs bark at us, viruses attack our bodies, sharks bite us, lightning strikes us, earthquakes cause our buildings to fall down. However, there is one human being who did rule the natural world. He spoke a word and healed disease. He stilled storms with a word. He filled fishing nets with a word. He walked on water. I am talking, of course, about Jesus. Jesus Christ, risen from death, seated at God's right hand, possesses all of the royal dignity of the image of God that God intended for human beings. Hebrews 2, 8, 9, at present we do not see everything subject to human beings, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour. On the surface of it, Genesis 1 tells a smoothly unfolding story of six days of creation arriving at their completion in the seventh day of God's rest. And Psalm 8 raises a question, though, about human beings who seem, upon observation, so small and yet are said to be so honoured. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Hebrews 2 says that the doubts we might have about God's intentions for humanity are cleared up when we see Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says of Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That is, we don't really see humanity in the image of God until we see Jesus. And we won't really be human beings in the image of God until Jesus is finished raising us from the dead and remaking us in his image. Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that is Adam, so we shall bear 
the image of the heavenly man, that is, Jesus. In other words, there is a sense in which we are living still on the sixth day of Genesis 1. And God is still at work making humanity in his image. This work of God includes our redemption, our rescue from the powers of sin and death and the devil. For Jesus, being firstborn over all creation also means being firstborn from the dead, which involves him going down among the dead. As Hebrews 2 puts it, he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Only when everything has been put under the feet of Jesus will we really reach the seventh day, the day of rest and completion. Only when Jesus has destroyed the last enemy, that is death, will God's work be done. Only when we share in Jesus' death, his risen life, his victory and his reign over all things, will human beings be who God is creating us to be. Okay, if you are still with me, you have slogged through a biblical forest and up a theological mountain. Well done. I'm sorry if you got left behind on the way, but if you are still with me, I hope it's been a good hike. Let's ask then, how can we kind of come home again to our lives in Perth from here? I have three suggestions. Firstly, We can give glory to God when we see and sense the splendour of his creation. For the psalm begins and ends, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So when the grandeur of the world touches you, then sound a note of praise to God in your heart or on your lips. For this that touches you is the echo of his glorious name. That is what thrills us in the wonder of created things. We can give glory to God when we see and sense the splendour of creation. Secondly, we can take heart that we are not simply poor, bare, forked animals. If the only question we could ask was, what is a human being? Without God's care for us, we might lose heart. For a human being, just on observation, is a bit of an absurdity. Thrown, for apparently no reason, into an indifferent world. To sink or swim. To win or lose. But in the end, to pass into oblivion. But the psalm doesn't ask the question... What is a human being? It asks the question, what is a human being that you, God, are mindful of them? The puzzle is not the absurdity of our existence and our awareness of our existence. The puzzle is the promise that God is mindful of us, who seem so absurd. The puzzle or the wonder is that God is in the process of exalting us of all creatures. 
making us rulers over the works of his hands and putting everything under our feet. So we can take heart that we're not simply poor, bare-forked animals destined to live for no apparent reason and to pass inevitably into oblivion. Thirdly and lastly, we can hold firmly to Jesus as he takes hold of us. For let's not kid ourselves, we are not just a little lower than the angels. We are falling far short of the holiness of the heavenly beings. And if we are to prove worthy and be prepared and fit to be rulers of creation, then, well, we need to be changed. And we need to hold on to Jesus as he changes us, as he saves us, as he brings us to God. And in that process and serving that process, Paul says, you were taught, Christian, to put off your old self, to be made new in the image of your in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Hebrews 3:1 says therefore holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. Psalm 8 Genesis 1 they put before us a heavenly calling. We share in it. So fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And he goes on to say, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We can hold on to Jesus as he takes hold of us. We have this great patron, you see, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, who has sent his son to exalt us to royal dignity. And we have great expectations that we will share what Jesus has as we and if we entrust ourselves to him. And so we seek to live lives worthy of that calling, to be trustworthy, gentle, wise, to be mindful of other people, to be mindful of animals, the animals of the land and the sea and the sky, of the plants and the soils and the rivers and the trees, of the very stars in the sky. For the one who made them is mindful of us. Shall we pray? Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens and so help us to praise you when we see and sense that majesty. Help us also, Lord, to take hold of Jesus as he takes hold of us. We, we thank you that you have a plan of redemption and exaltation for us. And it's hard to believe as we live our apparently small and insignificant lives. But do, Lord... Lodge that hope in our hearts and may it change the way we live today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.